It is Tuesday, February the 9th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast exploring social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as a Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. We've got a lot to cover today in a short period of time, so let's get right to it by meeting the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist, and he's the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hey, John, how are you today? Hi, everybody. Good to be back. Our second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson. Neil's a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Pleasure to be with you, Bill. And our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Fawad and Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and he is the author of the best-selling Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill. Great to be with everybody. Okay, so gentlemen, it's an interesting week, both in politics and history. Uh, Last Saturday was Ronald Reagan's 110th birthday. Friday is Abraham Lincoln's birthday. And in between the two, the second, not the first, but the second Senate impeachment trial of one Donald John Trump. This would seem a good time to talk about the Republican Party and what happens to the future of that institution. Is there life with Trump? Is there life without Trump? What do Republicans exactly stand for today? Joining us today to talk about this, I can't think of a better guest, one of the smartest political minds I know. That is our Hoover colleague, Peter Robinson. Peter Robinson is the Murdoch Distinguished Policy Fellow at the Hoover Institution, where he writes about business and politics and hosts Hoover's video series program on common knowledge. I believe he taped an episode earlier today on impeachment. Peter served as chief speechwriter to then Vice President George H.W. Bush and for five years as special assistant and speechwriter to President Ronald Reagan. He wrote the historic Berlin Wall Address in which President Reagan challenged Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall. Peter is also an accomplished author. He's written multiple books, one of which is another reason why he's here today. The top that book, which came out in the summer of 2000, is It's My Party, A Republican's Messy Love Affair with the GOP. Peter, thanks for joining Goodfellows. Uh, you're welcome, Bill. Although that, that introduction was so fulsome, I have nowhere to go but down. <laughs> Please, don't be, don't be humble. Don't give us the humble brag. So, gentlemen, uh, there's a lot to talk about Republicans, but first, let's uh, tend to some Hoover business, and that's some very sad business, and that's the passing of the great legendary George Shultz, who, ironically, since he was Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State, he passed away at the age of 100 on Saturday, February the 6th, which was also mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan's 110th birthday. I just love coincidence like that. Peter Robinson, why don't you start it off? You had multiple opportunities to sit down and have conversations with Secretary Schultz. Very briefly, a couple of thoughts on the secretary. What made him so special? Yeah, a, a couple of things that I haven't seen in the obituaries. One is that he was a brilliant synthesizer. You'd sit in a meeting, it would go on for who knows how long, half an hour or an hour. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Schultz would simply sit there and nod and take, take mental note. And then at the end, he would offer a summing up, which compressed compress the entire issue, identify the nub, put it in a memorable way. And then there was also the executive about him at every meeting I ever attended with him. And it was dozens of them, almost every meeting I ever attended with him. Somebody got an assignment. You write so-and-so, and I'd like to see it on such and such a date. That's a big, that, he, he, it was a commanding presence and he could synthesize. The other bit of this, in some of the obits, I have to admit, I, I'm finding a little bit annoying because there's this little implication that George Schultz really handled foreign policy and Ronald Reagan did what George Schultz wanted to do. Mr. Schultz would never have stood for that. 
he was one of the few people, I think he was so successful in the administration because he was one of the few people who really did not condescend at any level in his own mind, in his thinking and his relationship with Ronald Reagan. You know, Ferguson, the uh, career arc of George Shultz, he graduates from Princeton. He fights with the Marines in the Pacific. He uh, pursues a path in academia. He then goes into government. He leaves government and goes into the private sector. He goes back into government to work for Reagan as Secretary of State. He then finishes with academia at the Hoover Institution. Is there any historical parallel to uh, an individual who had a course like this? Does anyone come to mind? <laughs> well, uh, there aren't really that many uh, left of that uh, extraordinary generation that fought as young men World War II and then, uh, then fought uh, as statesmen the Cold War and ultimately fought it to victory in both cases. Mm -hmm. Henry Kissinger, whose uh, biography I'm halfway through writing, uh, does indeed spring to mind. Right. And uh, maybe now the last of that extraordinary generation are still standing. But I want to just uh, uh, pay tribute to, to George Schultz's unique combinations of integrity, uh, modesty, and as Peter so rightly said, uh, executive firepower and convening genius. Mm. You know, for a man who was in his late 90s, uh, uh, George Schultz deeply impressed me when I moved full time to Hoover by his energy and an entrepreneurial intellectual vision. The whole sequence of conferences and seminars that he convened on problems of global governance, which included incidentally sessions on the dangers of pandemics, was absolutely extraordinary. And I don't think anybody else could quite have done it and kept on doing it because it kept running, didn't it, year after year. And uh, my little anecdote is, uh, is how I got given my marching orders uh, by Mr. Schultz. I'd, I'd written a book, The Square and the Tower, pointing out all the problems with a highly networked world, all the terrible pathologies of social media, etc. And uh, George Schultz took note of this book and said, well, what are we going to do about it? And I was essentially <laughs> told, young man, you've defined the problem. It's now time to formulate a solution. And I wrote a paper, uh, What is to be done, at uh, George Schultz's firm insistence. And it was a really fulfilling, though very challenging intellectual mission that he assigned me. But I, it's one of the few times in my career when I felt like I should salute when being given an order. I shall mm. miss him very, very much, as will everybody at Hoover. HR, your thoughts on George Schultz, the geopolitical thinker? Well, you know, I think what he combined, and we've already alluded to this, he, he combined a practical experience and a knowledge of really what it takes to get things done, to implement, and deep knowledge about the challenges we faced uh, so that he could, he could make good policy with an eye toward implementation. A lot of people don't have both those, th that, that range of experiences. He also understood the integration of diplomatic efforts with economic policy and defense policy. I mean, one of my favorite quotations uh, of his is, uh, it goes something like, negotiation is a euphemism for capitulation unless the shadow of power is cast across the negotiating table. And I think this is a critical element of strategic competence. George Schultz knew that, that strategic competence involves the integration 
of all elements of national power. You know, today we have the mantra of, hey, we need more diplomacy. Well, more diplomacy for what purpose and how to integrate diplomacy with all elements of national power, I think is critical. Plus, you know, he was a great colleague. He never backed yes. down. I mean, he never, he never, he loved an argument, you know, up to, up to his hundredth year. And I don't know if Neil remembers this. We were in a session with him and I was making the argument for the withdrawal of the, the Inter Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which he was responsible for. The first treaty that eliminated a whole class of nuclear weapons. So he was, he was pretty emotionally tied to it. And we were we were in this argument, and somebody somebody made the snide remark, "Hey, why don't you two just take it outside?" <laughs> he, had, he, had, he had a great he had a great sense of humor still, uh, and, he, and he was gracious. He was a gracious host. He he and his wife uh, were just are, are, are fine are fine people, and and uh, and always made you felt feel welcome, um, and and really gave I think our our Hoover our Hoover uh, colleagues all of us a sense of of family and, and community as well. Yeah. John Cochran, you, you both taught at the University of Chicago, both economists. And when you came to Hoover, he reached out to you. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, I wanna offer um, some things about Schultz. Um, we're, we're keep remembering him as the great guy who helped win the Cold War, but Schultz was first and foremost an economist. And I hope as we write longer uh, remembrances of Schultz, those will be remembered because he did some wonderful things. In our brief time, I'll just mention a couple. He started out as Nixon's labor secretary. In the Nixon administration, uh, there was a strong anti-discrimination effort, which he uh, really helped help push forward as labor secretary and has some great stories. That, that, that's kind of not remembered in today's partisan uh, 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 moment, but uh, he really did uh, push that forward. He, um, when the price controls came on, he fought them valiantly. And the moment, the one time he ever quit uh, over something was over price controls. And if you're gonna, as an economist, if you're gonna quit over something, that's a pretty good thing to quit over. Finally, his famous motto was trust is coin of the realm. I have the coin of the realm, which he uh, handed out, was handed out at his 100th birthday party. So I've got the coin of the realm, George. So, so the rest of you, uh, trust is the coin of the realm. We need more trust. Very nice, John. If I could add my two cents, Secretary Schultz wrote me a very kind note and occurred to me, and Peter, you can appreciate this because you work for someone like this. This is what gentlemen of that age did. They always wrote mm. thank you notes. This is what gentlemen of that generation did. It was just about being polite and dignified. And my Lord, we miss that in politics right now. But Bill, could I just one other point that listeners should understand? We talk about him as though we just spoken to him. Yes. But that's almost true. When when Reagan died, he'd been ill for a decade, and none of us had seen the man for a decade. George H.W. Bush, when he left office, really set it all down. And by the end, he was unwell and only coming into his office from time to time. George Schultz, at the age of 99, was coming into the office at least three days a week, right up until the pandemic shut us all out. And after that, he was participating in Zoom calls. Uh, the last in which I saw him, of course, was his 100th birthday celebration on Zoom. Um, but that was only a few months ago. He, the astounding thing is that this man who was born one century ago was someone who was a colleague, a real colleague to us in the office, on the phone, summoning us to meetings right up until just months ago. 
Right. All right. Uh, for those of you who are more interested in the life of George Schultz, uh, I encourage you to go to the Hoover website, www.hoover.org. Our marketing team has put together just a really wonderful tribute to him in words and pictures. So go check that out if you want. Uh, Peter, let's talk Repub Republican politics now. If you're a Republican running for the presidency, the Reagan Library, Peter, is a necessary pilgrimage. You come out to that beautiful building in Simi Valley, you pay your respects to the president and the first lady, and then you give a speech, Peter. And as a recovering speech writer, you can write this speech in your speech because you know exactly how it goes. You pay tribute to the great man. You praise him for his decency, his dignity, his core convictions. You then talk about what he did for America and the world. And then you segue into your own belief in the shining city on the hill, what you think America needs to be done. And if you do this right, Peter, you walk away with people thinking that you are the rightful heir to Ronald Reagan. My question to you, Peter, if 20 to 30 years from now, there is such an animal as the Donald J. Trump presidential library, Mm -hmm. Will Republican presidential candidates make the same pilgrimage when they try to wrap themselves in Donald Trump and make themselves as the rightful heir to that presidency? If so, or if not, Peter, what does this say to borrow the line for your book? What does this say about the Republicans' messy love affair with Donald Trump? Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Richard Epstein elevated the way to put this just yesterday when we were talking about the trial. Our colleague, Richard Epstein, who's a constitutional scholar, apparently there's an academic term, maybe it's an economics term, John, for this kind of problem. Donald Trump is a tied good. Pretty good policies in all kinds of ways. Not all good policies, but pretty good in many ways. Accomplished, in my judgment, HR can all of you, of course, can weigh in on this, but I'd be interested especially in HR because HR was there as national security advisor. People had had an uneasy sense about China for some time now. Trump is the one who makes China, who grasps that China is a problem and establishes, astoundingly, there is now a bipartisan consensus that China is a problem. Joe Biden considers all of his kind talk toward China as Vice President Biden, kind of embarrassing now that he's President Biden. So Trump gets a lot done. But there's no way of taking those policies without taking the whole man. And he was vulgar and crude and in some startling ways, not even a very well-informed or skillful politician. He was outraged about the way what election irregularities that happened on election day. I, I assumed for months that he, or at least his campaign organization was paying attention to what was taking place before the election. The wholesale effort to change rules to permit much looser f forms of mail-in balloting. He seems not even to have been aware of it. So even when he's onto something, he's onto it in the wrong way. Um, the, the hard work, and I believe it will be hard work, of taking the intellectual hard work of taking the good in Donald Trump, what Donald Trump achieved with the help of people such as H.R. McMaster, and there, there were achievements, consolidating those achievements while really ridding itself of the ill effects of Donald Trump. And I don't, I don't think ridding itself is too weak, is, is language that it's, it's correct. The party somehow or other ha has to rid itself of the ill effects of Donald Trump. That is going to be a trick and a half. How to do it, I don't know, but we're going to watch. 
a couple of dozen extremely talented people, we can name some of them, uh, get to work on that problem. Excuse me, so there's the intellectual problem, then you've got the political problem. The Republican Party can't go anywhere without holding on to the Trump voters or anywhere without adding to the Trump voters, in particular, winning back the suburbs. These right. are two hard problems, intellectual work and political work. It's still very hard to tell how enduring the Trumpist movement will be within uh, the Republican Party. The polling immediately after the catastrophic events of January the 6th was quite confusing. One poll suggested 45% of Republicans had supported the storming of the Capitol. Another said it was 18%. My hunch is that things fade faster yes. in our time than they did in the time of Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. And that everything moves at something like 10 times the speed it used to move. Mm-hmm. Even the outrage that people felt a month ago, including me, has somehow dissipated uh, because of the constant bombardment of, of events. Right. And, and that means that the impeachment uh, trial somehow feels anticlimactic even as it begins. Mm-hmm. Trump's disappearance from social media was the real coup of January the 6th, a remarkable mm-hmm. uh, turn of events, revealing actually many of the things that George Schultz had encouraged me to write more about uh, with respect to the dangerous state of affairs with respect to regulation of network platforms. But I think it's not just that Donald Trump was cancelled. He has lain dormant. He could have been a good deal more visible, even with those restrictions by Twitter and Facebook than he's been. And my hunch at this point is, therefore, that he will fade faster than uh, is assumed, uh, that he will soon be replaced uh, in the affections of those people for whom the personality cult was attractive. Notice they already found a surrogate within days of his disappearance uh, in the form of uh, MTG. And I, I think that uh, she's only the first of many surrogates of, of substitutes that the personality cult will, will latch onto because ultimately Donald Trump is a busted flush and there won't be a ritual of uh, the sort that you describe, Bill, uh, in future years, certainly not 20 years from now. I'm not even sure it'll be true 20 months from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my bet is on, on there being no second act here and a faster fade than we we're expecting because we still fully haven't adjusted to the the extraordinary uh, United States of amnesia that we live in. This this oh, yeah. is all going to fade faster than we think. I'll tell you, just to pick up on that, I would I would uh, go back to the Reagan analogy that you began with, mm-hmm. Bill uh, and that uh, Peter discussed. You know, Ronald Reagan ran against big government. <laughs> uh, Donald Trump tapped into the sentiment against the swamp and not only ran against big government, but he ran against his own administration. And then ultimately, I think he acted out against himself right? and, 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 uh, and in many ways was his own worst enemy. Ultimately, President Reagan was about the politics of addition, right? Bringing more people into his agenda, whereas I think President Trump took an approach of doubling down on a narrow base. He was really more about the, the politics of subtraction, right? In a, in a period when we are increasingly polarized and, 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 uh, and su- subject 
uh, to all sorts of disinformation and social media algorithms. And he, in many ways, exacerbated all, all of that. He didn't cause it, right? He didn't cause it. And I think maybe a question we'll ask maybe in the coming years as we look back on it, did he make America stronger or weaker? Anyway, so much to discuss there. I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to think of what a, what a Donald Trump library looks like and where it is. I think there's some good real estate opportunities in Atlantic City. You know, maybe for 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 it. <laughs> you need an iPhone that you can swipe a bunch of tweets. What's <laughs> the closest to you, Peter? Actually, than, than oh, okay. Nineteen ninety nine, Peter. You hopped in a car, flew around the country in search of the next Republican thing, trying to figure out mm. what Republicans stood for, who could lead the party, and you landed on two squares. One was George W. Bush in Texas, a very competent, mm. compassionate conservative governor, Got and in all right. places, New York City. Rudy Giuliani, a very competent mayor attending to people's needs, crime, economy, and so forth. We know what happened to these two gentlemen. Neil, maybe you can try to tell us which Shakespearean character Giuliani ended up becoming. Uh, I can think of a long list. But Peter, if we gave you a COVID shot, put you in a car, sent you out, where would you go looking for the next Republican entity, the next person to lead the party? Where, where Florida. Would you Florida. 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 I, 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 even two weeks ago, I had a list of people in my head that was a, at least a dozen people long. Mm -hmm. And you know what? In two weeks, I've just developed, the, what, what are the kids, I've developed a man crush. Is that it? Or am I saying something that's improper here? On Ron DeSantis. <laughs> uh, stop, ta stop talking about me, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> HR, keep that quiet. All right. Um, so DeSantis, look, there are several different people, right? But if I had to choose, I'll... Uh, in Washington, Tom Cotton seems to me to have done a remarkable job in a state that was hard for Trump of taking, of doing this hard intellectual work. And Tom Cotton is one highly intelligent young senator. Tom Cotton taking the positive aspects of Trump and trying to be creative with them. A really good politician will take the politics of the moment and try to, try to do something with it. Tom Cotton did not disgrace himself in the electoral college vote count. He announced before the riot, he announced, as I recall, the day before or that morning, that he would not be joining those who would vote to challenge the electoral counts on constitutional grounds. He, dis, he, he, he handled himself immaculately throughout all of that. Tom Cotton strikes me as, as a comer in all kinds of ways. The man crush is for Ron DeSantis, though for a couple of reasons. One is that I, I've had only one hour long encounter with him. It was three or four years ago when he was in Congress and I didn't know who he was. We were at some conference and we ended up during a break having a cup of coffee together. And here's the way Ron DeSantis reads. He's, he's, he's built about like HR actually. You wouldn't be too surprised. To, to, he's, he's, a, he's square and powerful. And actually he is, has kind of a gravelly voice like HR. So he reads like, tough, just a tough guy. Like HR though, there's a trick there. Ron DeSantis, Harvard, Yale, Rhodes Scholar, two tours in the United States Army. The guy, like our own HR, turns out to be just brilliant. So he's, he, he, he has a middle-class upbringing and he reads, he sounds, he walks, he talks, like an ordinary approachable guy you'd feel perfectly at ease having a beer with. 
And then you go, as I did, I go back to my hotel room. Who the heck was that congressman? You look him up and it turns out there's a remarkable intellectual record of intellectual achievement there. Okay. So <clears throat> he gets elected in Florida, which is a great, big, complicated state in a squeaker of, election, of an election. To whom does he attribute his victory? African-American women. Because he came out in support of school choice and carry that argument into Florida cities and won disproportionate support among African-American women, even though his opponent was an African-American himself. What does he do during COVID? I have no idea where all of you stand on COVID or what should have been done or what shouldn't have been done. But every press conference he gave was deeply informed by reading a reading of the science. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford told me that Jay Bhattacharya, who's uh, one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, but has published. If you were a regular listener Journal. to Goodfellows, Peter, not yes. only would you know you had Jay on COVID, but you'd know that he'd been on. Uh, you know, but just just don't don't let me interrupt you. <laughs> That's good. Okay, oh, I, I won't interrupt you. So because... Jay, Jay said Jay said that Ron DeSantis called him Jay out of the blue. Phone call. Hello, this is Ron DeSantis. I'm the governor of Florida and asked for a kind of informal briefing on COVID. And Jay said, every time he started to quote a recent paper, Ron DeSantis had already read it. Uh, so he refuses to lock down Florida wholesale, uh, keeps the economy open, keeps schools open. The economy of Florida does not take anything like the hit that the economy of California or New York has done. That strikes me as pretty smart and courageous. And then you get this tech coup where they're throwing off they shut down parlor it's not they don't just de-platform donald trump they shut down all kinds of conservative groups they crush parlor and ron DeSantis proposes legislation if you get deplatformed in the state of florida you get to sue twitter or facebook or name the entity now I don't know about the legal aspects of that proposal. It has yet to go before the legislature. That's a complicated thing to pull off. But he just stands up and says, no, I'm not putting up with this. This, this guy strikes me as pretty remarkable. So that's, I, would head, I would head to Tallahassee of all places. Although, of course, I'd, I'd detour through, down through Miami first to have a little fun before heading up to Tallahassee. Well, let, let me let me jump in here because I want to ask. I want to phrase this as a question. Uh, you know, my, <laughs> well, I think so. We we try to stay away from personalities here in part because four years is a long time. I think your general point is right. Uh, there are and and I won't stop to name them either. There's lots of sensible, intelligent uh, people in the Republican Party who could put this together. I think the challenges for them, which is with the part that'll be a question when I slowly turn this around like Jeopardy to make it a question. There's two challenges. One is to not get wiped off uh, the map completely in the moment of disarray and the Democrats um, clear desire to turn a tiny 50-50 majority into permanent, uh, permanent. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, you mentioned internet censorship, which will come back. So number one, mm -hmm. how do you avoid getting, uh, you know, one person, one vote, one time, uh, and completely wiped off of civil society, of elect electoral rules, <laughs> of filibusters, of any right to do anything. But then the larger one is what a message and set of policies does whoever comes out to embody them 
uh, put together in order to, yes, uh, keep the, the Trump, the people who had pre-existing concerns and found a voice in Donald Trump for them and the suburbans and everyone else. And, and I think, I, I hope now here, I'm gonna talk our own book. <laughs> the, the answer has to be not traditional conservatism, stop the world, I wanna get off. It has to not be um, just slow down the progressive train a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, there, are going, there are now huge problems in America. And if we are right at all, there's gonna be bigger problems uh, in a couple of years. Uh, cities are going to look bad. Schools are going to look worse. The economy is going to slow down and so on and so forth. So I would think the message has to be um, freedom, but freedom can solve your problems, which is kind of how I'm putting together what you said about DeSantis. Um, schools are a disaster. And that's a lot of what's driving inequality and all sorts of uh, problems. Well, uh, we know how to solve that. We'll give you freedom to choose your own schools. Um, we could go on. Uh, crime is uh, a, a, a resurgent problem in the cities. Uh, a Republican has to find a solution to that. And, and uh, you know, the economic answer is, of course, uh, always freedom, freedom to speak, um, freedom to associate. I'll, I'll, I think that is the message that I found you uh, putting, uh, noticing in Ron DeSantis mm -hmm. and suggesting mm -hmm. as the winning message to, uh, to do not just freedom, but freedom will solve problems. Uh, you know, when there's a housing problem, let people build houses uh, <laughs> uh, is, 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 the, is going to be the positive message. So th those are the two real questions for you. How do you get avoiding, avoid getting wiped off the map? And what is the uh, message that whoever embodies it will hopefully successfully bring? And the answer to both questions is, I don't know, but I can, I can, I, I can name one of the many strengths of this country by contrast with, let us say, for example, Britain, I don't think I'd ever have noticed this if I hadn't spent a couple of years uh, studying in Britain myself. This country is really and, really and truly has a federalist system. Here's how Tom Cotton avoids being canceled. He remains popular in Arkansas. There's a limit to how much Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook or Jack Dorsey of Twitter can do to him as long as he retains the connection with the people of Arkansas that he has. He has a place in the United States Senate. Ron DeSantis got reelect, got elected, looks as though he will be reelected. You retain your base and stay close to the people who elected you. That's how you avoid getting canceled. You have canceled, to be able to communicate with them. So we have, you know, Ron Johnson's been, his Senate hearing was canceled out of Twitter. Um, you know, book, book contracts are being uh, canceled. Um, you know, just being a, a U.S. senator doesn't guarantee that you won't get censored anymore off of the media platform. Well, that may be as a national matter, but no, but the, Tom Cotton is still a dominant story in Arkansas. And Ron DeSantis still commands the press in Florida. These guys are, are copy. These guys are very good copy. And then as to, I'm so, so this is where I was so struck that by contrast with, I couldn't understand I was a child at the time, really a child. I mean, in, a baby at the time. But I couldn't understand why the um, Tory party in Britain was so moribund. And in this country you had, and of course the answer is because parties in Britain, there is a certain, there is a level of discipline and organization and structure that doesn't exist with the parties here. There are problems with that for the parties here for sure. 
But whoever is running a party in Britain can actually suppress other points of view, which is a way of saying suppress experiments in the party in Britain. In this country during the 70s, you had the liberal Republicans back east, but you also had Ronald Reagan out in California who was trying out different approaches, trying out different language, trying out different tax policy. There was a, there were certain uh, ballot measures he couldn't get, even he, even the great Ronald Reagan couldn't get enacted. But you have an opportunity here for people to try out different stuff. And that's what's going on. So you've already got distinctions between Tom Cotton is one flavor, Nikki Halley's working on something else. You've got Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. I can't imagine that a New England Republican would ever have a serious shot at president. But what do I know? He's one of the most popular governors in the entire country among his own people right now. So, so, so you, you've got lots of opportunities because of our federalist system for, for experiments to take place. Okay, let's get Neil in. Neil, I've heard Tories, I've heard Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. <laughs> this is your life. Well, I'm not sure I find Peter's contrast between the United States and the United Kingdom only plausible because the British parties are really quite broad churches and discipline was certainly not sufficient in the 1970s to prevent the rise of Margaret Thatcher. And I can't imagine anything more remarkable, actually, looking back, than that the Conservative Party should have a female leader who should then become uh, prime minister with uh, an ideological view so close to that of the Hoover Institution that we still, every now and then, look back on that time and wonder if it was all a dream. Uh, the United States still not mm. produced anyone like Margaret Thatcher with all the uh, experiments at the state level you talk about, Peter. Um, nothing close. Uh, and uh, here it is, uh, 2021. I, I actually agree with you, though, Peter, about DeSantis, and here's why. The critical question for anybody bidding to be the next uh, Republican presidential nominee is can you carry the Trump voters with you? Uh, can you uh, reconcile them to his uh, disappearance? And I, I was actually very struck by my own fo focus group in this regard. Now, you don't know about my focus group. I don't think I've ever talked about it on Goodfellas. But Mike and Jerry provide uh, my wife Ayan's security. Mike is working hard right now because Ayan has a new book out, which means she is once again in uh, the line of fire. And uh, Mike is the first person to tip uh, DeSantis ahead uh, of you, Peter. And, and Mike was also one of the very first people, uh, along with Jerry, to tell me that Trump was going to be the Republican nominee uh, in 2016 and would win. And I've had this wonderful focus group uh, because these are smart guys, but they did not go to college. They are, uh, in the case of Jerry, an ex-Marine, uh, both ex-NYPD. Uh, and the view of the world that I have got over the years from Mike and Jerry has been so much more reliable uh, when it comes to thinking about U.S. politics than the Harvard professors and Stanford professors could come up with that I now swear by my focus group. And uh, so Mike is with you, uh, Peter, and very much agrees with your analysis, very much agrees that this man has what it takes. And therefore, if Mike and Jerry are already on board, I'm, I'm, I'm putting him right at the top of the league. I, I agree with you about Tom Cotton too, but, uh, but it's hard for Tom, I think, to be uh, a nationally plausible uh, presidential candidate 
because somehow Tom Cotton's intellectual uh, acuteness is too visible. And remember, as Ronald Reagan taught us all, the key is to hide your intellectual far par so completely that the rest of the world thinks you're a hick cowboy. Uh, Tom is too obviously smart. Uh, this will put off a critical mass of American voters. But DeSantis appears to me to be able to keep uh, his brain well concealed. So yeah, I think this is a great insight and it could solve the problem. There's one other thing we should talk about. And that is what the Democrats are gonna get wrong. Because remember, uh, it's a dynamic system and the Democrats are already uh, well on the way with a succession of mistakes that will uh, certainly allow the Republican party to make a political comeback. When Larry Summers, the high priest of secular stagnation, goes live in the Washington Post and says your stimulus is way too big and is going to overheat the economy, you have a problem. And although they all love to hate on Larry now, the truth is that he blew an intellectual hole in Biden's economic strategy so large that uh, they'll all, all of the good fellows could comfortably swim through it. So I think the key here is just to bear in mind uh, what I wrote about in the Bloomberg column a few weeks ago, events. Events will come along very swiftly uh, and make the Democrats look uh, far less compelling than they have looked uh, since the, the, the events of January the 6th, which handed Biden the perfect curtain raiser for his presidency. But it, it all starts to unravel from here. On immigration, it starts to unravel. I think it starts to unravel on China, where I think they are talking very, very tough talk. But at some point, the Chinese are going to ask them to walk the walk. And then we'll see if the word Blinken uh, contains the word blink for a reason. I just want to follow up on that because I know HR hasn't gotten a chance in a bit, but I have a follow-up thought. Well, I thought the idea was to keep HR from talking. No, no, no. I like to steer clear of this anyway. I'm, this is the, <laughs> no, no, this I'm is the area. I mean, I'm, I'm underqualified in a lot of areas, but this is the way. Uh, I'm going to follow this by, by bringing, I have a question for HR. To, I actually to mentioned China to THR up and you dive in, Cochran. It's just Well, because so well, I want to follow up on your first thing and then and then we'll dive into foreign policy. Uh, a, a month or so ago, um, I opined on this show that I was secretly hoping for the Democrats to win the Georgia Senate because there's a, a time in military affairs where you dance around and then there's a time when you have the decisive battle. And I thought it would be fun to give the, Dem the Democrats not to have an excuse, oh, those evil Republicans are stopping us, but to have the power and to see what they'll do with it and to see how the woke millennials versus the Woodstock generation play out. And what I see in, in what's happened already, as, as Neil pointed out, uh, two more years of this, let alone four more years of this, uh, the, the, uh, the progressive bandwagon is going unchecked. And not just Trump's uh, voters, which let's remember are, are the cops and the firefighters, not just the, the Proud Boys and the rest of it, but the, suburb, the suburban people, even, even my, my lovely progressive Palo Alto is gonna get tired of the waves of homeless people and crime that's, uh, that's coming this way. Um, when we just see, I think they are going to vastly overplay their hand. And uh, in some sense, perhaps the Republicans just have to have a, a vaguely sensible message, a, a good messenger, and, and wait for the other side to shoot themselves in the foot and to be revealed as a, as a loony left uh, in America. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to stick with it. It's going to be painful, but I think uh, that's the process we're seeing. Now for HR. <laughs> Uh, there's, there's not just China. Uh, there is, uh, it, it looks like we are going to uh, 
continue backing out of Afghanistan. It looks like we're going to uh, um, uh, side up with Iran again. We're going to uh, say mean things about this. So there was a, a statement. Um, yeah, oh, it's it's horrible that they're doing that. They're uh, that Putin is keeping Navalny in jail. Are we going to do anything about any of this, or are we going to go back to being America, who 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 says big things and does nothing? Perhaps that'll be the the foreign policy version of of what both Neil and I were pointing to is just uh, let, give them enough rope to hang themselves and wait for a while. Yeah, I think I think event I think events as as, as Neil said and, and as he wrote about in this column, you know, it's not going to be maybe even primarily dependent on what the Biden administration decides to do, but what the actions are of our rivals and adversaries. So look at the path that China's on. I mean, they're on a path of of increasing aggression, right? They just threw an Australian journalist in jail for who knows how long as they continued this campaign of economic coercion on Australia. Hey, Australia needs strong American and other mm. uh, liberal democratic countries to join in support of them. Look at, at, the, at how increasingly aggressive Putin has become. And I think he will become even more aggressive as he feels as if he's under duress from the protests associated with Navalny's, uh, Navalny's imprisonment. I think that Iran is going to perceive that we're weak, you know, and, and I think it's very likely that something could happen in the Middle East, maybe through proxies in, in Yemen to to try to shut down the Bab al-Mandeb or to, you know, to, to inter interrupt sh uh, shipping there uh, or maybe to threaten Israel more directly uh, through their proxies and IRGC forces in Syria uh, you know, Lebanon's in free fall. I, I think, how are they going to cope with this? So I think that regardless of what they would prefer to do, this they being the Biden administration, they're going to be, they're, they're going to be faced with some very difficult events in the area of foreign policy. And, and this is where I think, you know, again, I tend to be the optimist on this, on this show, uh, Peter, uh, you know, are, I would, I'd be interested to hear what Peter thinks. So what are the possibilities of any degree of bipartisan, nonpartisan consensus on anything, right? I mean, and I, how about foreign policy? I mean, is there is there an opportunity there uh, to to begin to build, you know, some sort of, of common agenda that cuts across both parties? I mean, in fairness to Tony Blinken, Tony Blinken really surprised me by saying a positive thing about Trump's China policy, uh, and saying that there were there were uh, the, the fundamental direction had been right, even if the tactics might yeah. change under the Biden administration. I thought that was brave of him. But I do think that uh, he and uh, Jake Sullivan uh, have used strong language, particularly on human rights issues. There will come a moment when this is put to the test. Uh, and I think that's that's going to be a very, very interesting uh, test, really, of Team Biden's resolve. If there's a showdown over Taiwan, uh, you know, if you send a battleship or is it a destroyer uh, named after John McCain into the Strait of Taiwan, you are, by definition, spoiling for a fight. Uh, right, HR? And I think Taiwan is still, for me, the obvious foreign policy crisis that is coming yeah. towards the Biden administration. But I don't think the voters will probably worry too much about that. The voters are going to notice if they overheat the economy and we actually get not just a lot more of the financial craziness we've seen uh, in recent weeks, uh, but maybe inflation surprising 
uh, to the upside, or maybe it's just that the bond market takes fright, the dollar uh, continues to slide. I can see an economic series of problems coming, maybe the second half of this year. Because if you pour this much fuel in the fire when you're already vaccinating the population at a pretty high clip, uh, which is the real stimulus, I can't help feeling, and this is really one for John, that they might have a bit of a problem on their hands by the time we get to the midterm. I'm trying to think, and this is where you can help us, John, as the economist. I'm trying to think how this plays out. Do we get an inflation surprise in the second half? Is it a financial stability problem that trips them up? Reading Larry Summers, I felt like it was more the financial stability issue that he was concerned about. How are you thinking about this? And and what kind of uh, an economy will we have by, let's just say, the fall of of 2022? Well, I keep worrying about inflation and financial stability, and I haven't been for a long time. Uh, Now I've been pilloried because it hasn't happened yet, but I answer well. I live on an earthquake fault in, in California, and that hasn't gone in a long while either. I still worry about that. The mechanics of both are sort of like a run. Uh, If you know it's going to happen with any certainty, it happens immediately. Because if you know there's going to be a bank run tomorrow, you run to the bank today. Uh, I think what's more certain is that the um, regulatory and tax juggernaut is They're playing Obama um, 2008 on steroids. They decided the last stimulus wasn't big enough. And so they're going to make this one bigger. Uh, and they decided uh, that the last regulatory effort wasn't strong and unconstrained enough. The, the most amazing Biden executive order was the one essentially wiping all science and quantification out of cost benefit analysis, including a direction to affirmatively promote regulations, all regulations. Uh, so if anything uh, still works in economics, that what we're, what we're headed for, I don't know about the macro situation, which is supposedly my specialty, but um, uh, four years of, of sclerosis, uh, I, I, if this continues, is, uh, is fairly forecastable. But I, I want to go back. So, Peter, <laughs> hmm. let's bring you back in. Uh, we asked the question, is there something bipartisan we can do uh, on foreign policy? Uh, and, and the big change, of course, is this, oh, we're going to work with international institutions and, and our allies, and we'll see whether our allies trust us and want to work with us or what happens when they disagree with us and Europe wants to keep trading with Putin and China. Uh, and the other is, is there you know, room for something bipartisan domestically? I, I would think uh, passing the, um, the quote stimulus, unquote, uh, full of its pinata of progressive priorities on a strict 50 and a half <laughs> uh, vote uh, tells us where we're going on bipartisanship, but you're our political expert and especially uh, both economic um, foreign policy. Uh, th- I think that question was hanging for our political expert. Uh, domestically, the three, one, domestically, the only thing you can count on Congress to do in a bipartisan fashion is spend other people's money, which honestly, I have to say, I'm quite proud. Is that right? Yes, I am. I'm proud of Republicans for saying, wait a minute, there's a limit even to that. This is not the moment to spend what you, President Biden, and you Democrats on the other side of the aisle want to spend. But if somehow or other the economy is in reasonable shape and the country is still intact six months from now and the Bi- four months from now, the Biden administration wants to put together something on infrastructure along the lines of what Donald Trump was always talking about but never did, they could probably do that together and badly, but they do it, to, they'd spend on the wrong things, but it could, that could get done. The other two are, to my mind, in foreign policy, if there is a crisis concerning 
Israel, people will stand together on that. If there's a crisis concerning China, this, I confess, Neil mentioned this, I confess this is the one, it's my question. You know, all three of you, I, I, Neil has a book coming out. I've got Cochrane, you're the one man I haven't, all three of you are going to appear on my stinking show <laughs> within the next few months. So I get a chance to ask you all of these questions. But Taiwan, I have to say that's the one that concerns me. The Chinese throw Jimmy Lai in jail in Hong Kong and Donald Trump says that's a bad thing to do. And then the Chinese throw 40 some, they, they just fold up the pro-democracy movement 50, and throw them 53, all in jail. 53, 53, followed by another 11 a week later. All right. And the Trump administration, by now the president of the United States is so consumed with the campaign and voter reg that essentially nothing happens. I'm sure Mike Pompeo made good statements, but we didn't respond. And now the Biden administration has, I don't think if I understand the dynamics, why would I understand the dynamic? If I have some inkling of the dynamics of Beijing, I don't think they can help themselves. I think everybody will be looking at Xi and whatever the power structure is in the, the military in China. They have to move on Taiwan. Every time they probe the United States and encounter weakness, they all look at each other and say, probe farther. Uh, that one, you mentioned who sending a destroyer through the state, Strait of Taiwan. I can remember recording a show with Bill Perry and George Schultz. And Bill Perry told the story of when he was Secretary of Defense of sending an aircraft carrier through the Strait of Taiwan. And at that moment, his worst concern, his worst problem uh, was that there were two carriers at sea, there was an extra carrier in for repairs and finding a carrier that you could send through the strait was the worst problem that he had to consider. It was a logistical problem, not worrying about what the Chinese might do if we send an American carrier through the Strait of Taiwan. That is a single number of, single digit number of decades ago. And you couldn't conceive of Joe Biden sending an aircraft carrier through the Strait of Taiwan. Anyhow, so that's, if there's a crisis, the country will stand together, particularly concerning Israel and, and China and Taiwan. Gentlemen, um, we're, we're getting short on time here. So okay. I'd like to offer one more thought to you before we uh, wind down. And that's this, we all watched the Super Bowl last weekend and I do want to talk about the Super Bowl before we part ways. But the Super Bowl is about both football, bad football in this case, but also product placement, products, are about branding and the Republican party is ultimately a product that you have to sell to people as you would in a commercial product. So the question for the four of you to mull over, what is the Republican brand right now? Well, yeah, I'll go first and I'll be, I'll go first and I'll be quick. So I would just say that there's a, there's a big debate, right? And, and, and I'd love to hear comments on this. What, what is, what is a Republican? What is a conservative foreign policy? This is one of secretary Rice's, our, our director here at Hoover's priorities, you know, is to, is to help, redefine what a conservative foreign policy looks like. I think now there is a great deal of momentum behind those who are deeply skeptical about American involvement generally abroad and are making the case for disengagement from complex problems overseas as an unmitigated good. This is, this is the retrenchment movement. It exists in both political parties. But I think if we learn anything from COVID, it's that problems and challenges to our security that develop overseas can only be dealt with at an exorbitant price once they reach our shores. So I think we need, you know, we need a sustain an argument for a sustained and sensible approach to our security. 
and a sustainable approach to our security. And, and, and that ought to begin with trying to understand these problems on, on their own terms. I think there, there's deep skepticism, and rightfully so, about what international organizations can achieve. I think one of the one of the areas of difference between a Republican approach and maybe a Democratic Party approach is that I think Republicans recognize there's no prize for membership in international organizations, right? When 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 the Biden administration got back into the WHO, the World Health Organization, without any conditions and imposing any conditions, a big missed opportunity. Same thing with rejoining the Human Rights Council, for example. Same thing as well for the happy talk about hey, are, working with allies while the European Union is trying to get past this comprehensive agreement on investment with China that allows China to take this divide and conquer approach with us. So, you know, I think, you know, the word realism, realistic is is overused and little understood and these labels aren't really very useful. But I think an approach of of principled realism uh, to to the world and, and, and and the challenges and opportunities that emanate from it and with which we have to be engaged I think that that's that's a debate we're going to have uh, over the next two years. Let me try. You asked the question, what's the Republican brand? (laughs) And when you've just lost an election is when you go back, regroup and find a new brand. Right now, there's, of course, uh, an effort. The question is, do you get to define your own brand? Right now, the Democratic Party is working very hard to define the Republican brand. The uh, Senate is at it today. <laughs> Republicans consist of nothing but uh, racists and anti-fun and insurrectionists and so forth. Um, that probably isn't the brand the Republicans want. Uh, I think what uh, we're all hoping for is to rediscover a, a brand uh, based on uh, freedom, limited government, uh, that can actually solve uh, important problems in domestic policy. In foreign policy, a brand that is not hawkish, but serious, that stops drawing lines in the sand, recognizing that every time you draw lines in the sand and issue a stern communique and then don't do anything about it, uh, the other side figures out that you're weak. So figure out what you actually are willing to uh, do something about Mm -hmm. and don't make promises you don't intend to keep. Uh, And so the Republican Party's job, I think, is to um, find that brand uh, or their own brand. And then uh, in a difficult era, when they're trying to be painted to something else, uh, to promulgate that brand and, and get it ready for the next elections. I have a different view from all of this. My view is that the Republican brand is, broadly speaking, the policies that Donald Trump came to pursue without his toxic personality. In other words, the policies combined with a far more adept retail politician. Put it well, wait, wait a minute, Neil. Neil let you me can't finish. Mean let that. me finish. Because okay, what is going to happen, mean that. <laughs> John, is that the Democratic Party are going to pursue a woke agenda on issues of racial, quote, equity and on immigration. That was already made clear by the executive orders and actions that were published on day one of the Biden administration. Six were concerned with liberalizing immigration. Uh, Two were distinctly woke identity politics. And there's been more of that since. Now, there is a very big constituency in middle America for anti-woke, anti-identity politics, politics. And it is not exclusively white. What Trump showed is that there are Hispanic and black voters who are turned off by wokeism. And that wokeism is really the ideology of an overeducated class 
uh, of people who hanker after profoundly illiberal policies. All the Republican Party has to do is keep that coalition together of people who turned out in enormous numbers to vote for Trump, but give them a candidate who does not have Trump's profound defects as an individual. And I think that that's eminently doable, much more doable than people realize at this point, because the ideas of wokeism are so profoundly un-American. They're so profoundly illiberal. If you want to see the, how the Biden administration will self-destruct, watch how the New York Times is self-destructing at the moment. Watch how major universities have been destroying themselves for the last many years. It's all going to happen now at the federal level because the campus has come to the capital. And that's the thing that is going to bring about the Republican revival. Peter, last word. Last word? Last oh, word I was kind of hoping for a few last paragraphs, you know, <laughs> speechwriter that I am. I, I agree with Neil. Absent Donald Trump, this shouldn't be that hard. Even after the election, the, the election we went through, Republicans 50-50 in the Senate. They picked up seats in the House. They held 23 state legislatures and governorships. And Here's the state where the Republican Party is on its back, California. Let, let me just, a, couple, a few names. Here are the Republicans who won back seats from Democrats. Young Kim and Dawn Steele, both Korean. Mike Garcia and David Valadeo, both sons of Mexican immigrants. In the state assembly, listen to a few Republican names. There are not that many Republicans in the state assembly, but... They include Philip Chen, Stephen Choi, Vince Fong, Janet Nguyen, Suzette Martinez Valladares. The uh, maker of the mayor of Anaheim is Harry Sidhu. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that name. He's a Sikh. California. God bless the Golden State, which I keep every morning. I think, why am I not living in Texas? But on this, at the same time, <laughs> there's still this hope that this great big bowl of fruit that we inhabit, this colorful, vivid gorgeous state is leading the country once again, liberty, the constitution, and the American dream. And, and it works. Look, it works. It still works. Okay. Well, Peter, we might find out about that soon enough if there is a gubernatorial uh, recall, yes, that's true. which may materialize. We'll find out by the middle of March if the signatures are there for that. Uh, so gentlemen, let's wind down the conversation. Uh, we can't go without talking about that all-American of institutions, the Super Bowl. I assume all four of you watched the show uh, on Sunday. Uh, your thoughts on what transpired? What a terrible game American football is. If you'd only watched the very, Wait, very- Deplatform that man. Shut England. him off right Cancel now. him. Cancel watched, him. Throw him watched, back to England. So American football Stop is them. a corruption of rugby. Uh, it's largely the fault of Harvard University where the forward pass was first legalized in the late 19th century. Its invasion by commercials makes it unwatchable as a game. I watched England-Scotland, 80 minutes of uninterrupted rugby the day before. It was 100 times better as a sporting spectacle. I pity you if you could only follow HR's lead and embrace rugby, get rid of your helmets, throw away your shoulder pads, abandon your forward passes, and no bloody commercials during the game. That's my solution to most of America's problems in a nutshell. The name and, of that and man I would is just Neil say, Ferguson. We dissociate ourselves. The rest of us dissociate ourselves from his remarks. Ancillary citizenship. No, I, I, I agree. Okay. So, I mean, plus, 
it's logistically easier. All you need is a pair of boots and a mouth guard, <laughs> right? And, and the ball. And, and, uh, and, and it's, health it's, insurance. Two, two, it's two 40-minute halves with, you know, with a five-minute halftime. And guess what? There's no trash talking in rugby, right? I mean, the, the old saying is that, that you know, that, that soccer in the pub or, you know, after or football the game there is. is, is, <laughs> is, is a gentleman's sport played by hooligans, and rugby is a hooligan sport played by gentlemen. Nobody mouths off to the referee. It's, it's, it's one referee essentially watching, you know, watching 30 people, so you can get away with quite a bit if you'd like. But what, what's great about rugby is we can take a lesson for our society. You fight like hell for 80 minutes, and then guess what you do after the match? You have a beer with get the drunk. other team. Right. You know, and, and we ought to maybe try to apply that to some of our politics as well. <laughs> All have managed to miss the big story here. The big story is a tribute to longevity, to diet and exercise. Neil Ferguson, what is your secret to longevity and sustained excellence? As you look at Tom Brady, how does Neil Ferguson do what he does for so many years? Well, I haven't done it for very long. I'm only 56. And by Ferguson standards, admittedly, that's old. I mean, we began by talking about somebody who made a century, George Schultz. Uh, and nobody, no male Ferguson has ever, I think, got past 75. There is no secret to longevity in Glasgow. There is a secret to dying shortly after retirement. And that is, has already been alluded to by HR, a good deal of uh, contact sport followed by beer. I don't do so much of the contact sport these days, but I'm afraid I'm sure I'd lead a, a life that by the standards of Tom Brady is almost unbelievably bibulous and degenerate. And I won't make it to be a hundred. So don't plan any lengthy obituaries. Uh, th th they may have to be written sooner than you think. Hey, and we should add for our viewers who are, who are dying to know Scotland upset England in a defensive masterpiece, 11 to six, I think was the final, wasn't it, Neil? So I mean, first, I, I for the first time since I was 18, right. Scotland beat England at Twickenham. I can't tell you how much more meaningful right. that was. than And, the and, and Scottish rugby was kind of on the ropes, right? The, I mean, the American, the Eagles, the Eagles beat them uh, uh, two years ago, which was, a, I thought, a ray of hope for the Eagles, but then some disappointments followed. But anyway, a, a, an amazing match and hats off to, to Scotland. Well played. Thank you, HR. Okay, gentlemen, I do have one last question that we will wrap up. Uh, since we want to refer to Tom Brady as the GOAT, the greatest of all time, uh, since we just passed Reagan's birthday and we're now approaching Lincoln's birthday, who's the Republican GOAT? Oh, Lincoln. That's Lincoln. not close. The Reagan speechwriter says Lincoln. Okay. Yes, yes. I, I, I second that. Okay. I, I third that as well. John? Who's going to object to Lincoln? No one's going except to fight on this <laughs> Except, I guess, the school board of San Francisco, which recently canceled. <laughs> yes. okay, so maybe his name will go back Ryan up Feinstein. San Francisco High School. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, he hadn't done enough for Black people. Right. Okay. Well, gentlemen, thank you. That was certainly an interesting uh, conversation. We started with George Schultz. We somehow ended up with Honest Abe on a high school in uh, San Francisco. I enjoyed it. I hope you did too. And uh, I don't know, Neil, I think you'll make it past 75. Come on, have a little faith. Hey, Bill, Bill, one more thing. You didn't ask me my secret for longevity. What I, I have this thing called the thigh master that oh. I use during- Oh, that sounds during, revolting. What, what <laughs> during, <laughs> during, uh, during our Goodfellows taping. I, and you can do it on Zoom. It keeps you- in, very fit, very fit. I recommend it. But it's a machine? There's not a little person under the desk there, I hope. <laughs> He's laughing nervously. Do you see that? All right. Well, fellow speechwriter Peter, Peter Robinson, I'm speechless with the thought of HR doing his thigh <laughs> <master>. <laughs>
We will leave it at that. Gentlemen, thank you very much for a, a really wonderful conversation. I hope everyone has a very good weekend. I'm sorry about the Super Bowl, but, you know, maybe we'll get together. Maybe if society's back over, we can all watch it next year together at some location. So thanks a lot, and uh, we will see you next week. That's it for this week's Goodfellows. Uh, on the behalf of the Goodfellows, uh, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, our guest today, Peter Robinson. Uh, by all means, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll keep doing our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you in a week. Thank you.